Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Okay, so two questions, Ken Spiro. <laughs> uh, number one, um, I believe we're going to talk today about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and look a little bit at what's happening in the landscape today. Um, but first, we need to know, did you go on your archaeological dig this week? And if so, what did you find? I did, I did. And we found some really cool stuff. I actually didn't find that much cool stuff. I found another little lantern from the Maccabean period. My sister, who I dig with, is my next door neighbor in the old city. Um, they're digging out a cistern, an Abbasid. Abbasid is early Islamic uh, cistern. And she found incredible stuff, complete jugs. Amazing. I'll send you the pictures. Uh, complete oil lamps, like perfectly intact. Very rare to find that. I know archaeologists who dig for years and don't find stuff like that. Wow. So for her, it was like pay dirt. So uh, that's amazing. Okay, I'm putting in a request that on your website you start a blog where you just consistently post pictures of all the things that you find. What I found exactly. <laughs> I got to check with got to check with Tel Aviv University that oversees the dig oh, in the city of David publishing it i'll ask them if they, i don't think they really care that much but that'd be uh, so cool even like an instagram account or something where you just post pictures sure sure absolutely so cool. absolutely okay. goes to the heart of our discussion yeah so in what way how does that relate we really want to dig into anti-zionism and anti-semitism today and and what it really is looking like on social media so how does that relate what how do you put that together it's interesting when i was digging there we're, we're digging up all this islamic stuff there's such a you know, a, a hardline position amongst much of the Islamic world that there's never been a Jewish presence in the land of Israel before Zionism. Um, meanwhile, we're sitting there, you know, while we're digging, I was digging in a place that was uh, mid-second temple period, Maccabean actually, mm -hmm. but we're digging up all this Islamic stuff. We have no problem saying Muslims were there. They were there. It's a fact. Right. Right. <laughs> Jews were there before, but we're, we're dealing with all, we're not, it's not political. It's just about going through the history in an objective way and putting it all together and not politicizing and not writing anyone out of the book. If Israel right. behaved like uh, some of our, you know, some of the world, we just would like destroy this stuff and say, or oh, it's all Jewish. You right. know, like we had just, we just had Christmas, uh, a few weeks ago and you have like, people posting that Jesus is a Palestinian and, you know, <laughs> unbelievable stuff you know let's just let's just rewrite everything yeah yeah he it's may have been palestinian but he's a palestinian Jew. yeah <laughs> it's a really really interesting narrative that's coming through there so yeah I, I would love to talk about that also because it's definitely one of the claims that i'm seeing a lot on different social media channels especially from young people that they're being taught the narrative that jesus was palestinian and, um, and what does that mean for Christianity? What does that mean for Israel? Um, you know, that's kind of um, whole narrative. So um, should we just jump in there? Because that's a really interesting thing to address. And where is this even, where, the, where is that coming from? Is there any basis whatsoever? Um, and, or were those just two totally different time periods historically? I mean, first of all, no I mean, if he was a Palestinian, he was a Palestinian Jew, but the term Palestine used in the Middle East is only post the Bar Kokhba uprising from 132 to 135 CE. Remember the accepted 
chronology for Jesus is the year one to the year 32 CE. This is a hundred years before, literally a hundred years before, um, after the third great revolt against the Romans, Bar Kokhba, which was the biggest revolt. I mean, the great revolt of 63, of 66 to uh, 73 when Masada was the last event there, but from 70 when the temple was destroyed, took four Roman legions to crush that. The Bar Kokhba revolt, we now know, took all or part of 14 Roman legions. That's The Romans only had 24 legions in their empire. So by revolt number three, the Romans decided we're done with the Jews. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna end them. We're gonna we're gonna ban like the teaching of Torah and the observance of Judaism, like the Greeks tried to do in the Hanukkah story. <clears throat> but um, we're also gonna cut them off from their land and their holy places, Jerusalem, because if you want to end a people, you you know you you drive them out of their country, cut them off from it, and they'll either kill them off or they'll assimilate. So they renamed the whole country Philistia after an extinct people called the Philistines, not the Goldsteins. The Goldsteins are still around. The Philistines are gone. Um, the Philistines are not indigenous to Israel either. They migrated from Crete, Mycenae, maybe in the Middle Bronze period, possibly because of the explosion of the volcano Thera, which created the island of Santorini. There's a lot of speculation about their origins, but they settle on the southern coast of Israel, all on the coast of, of, of the Mediterranean Eastern side are different communities that are probably originally from the sea people that migrate across from the Aegean. Right. They were in Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Gat. If you read in the book of Genesis, they're there. They're all the way there through King David's time. Right. They, uh, they ceased to exist around two and a half thousand years ago when the Assyrians, who were the great world power that also dominated Israel, we were a vassal state of those guys, they ended them. So they disappeared two and a half thousand years ago, but fast forward to, you know, uh, a mere, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, less than 2000 years ago, 20, you know, like 1900 years ago after Bar Kokhba. And the Romans resurrect that term because Greeks who were the first historians in the West preserved the name Philistia. And the Romans decide, let's just rename the whole country Philistia. The Romans called it the Roman province of Judea before that. It used to be right. Israel before that. Right. That'll cut the Jewish people's connection off. We'll rename all the cities. You know, we'll rename Shem Naples, nice Italian name. Arabs don't have a P in their in their in their pronunciation, so they call it Nablus. Interestingly enough, Palestinians actually can't say the word Palestine. They say Palestine, or they say Palestine, but there's no P in, in Arabic. Right, um, right. And they renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. So even if you want to argue that, that, that Jesus is a Palestinian, first of all, he's a Jewish Palestinian, but the term isn't even he applied to Palestine. Palestine didn't exist before. When <clears throat> yeah, yeah. The, the term, the first of all, the whole, the whole term was created to, to cut the Jewish people off from Israel, just as the term is being recycled today for the exact same reason. Right. Right. To deny, you know, that, that modern Arabs who call themselves Palestinians, they can call themselves whatever they like. I, I don't I believe anyone can call themselves what they want, but they're not the ancient Philistines. And <laughs> it's not where they come from. And even if they were, which they're not, they're still not the indigenous population. So the whole thing, it's amazing. Nothing changes. We're just recycling the same. It sounds like from what you said anyways, the ancient Philistines were potentially from Crete or Greece. Like it wasn't even an Arab population from what I'm understanding. They weren't Arabs for sure not. They were, they were not Arabs for sure. Now, but this goes on and on and everything. It's right. interesting. I just saw Gal Gadot just got the role of uh, Cleopatra and all over the, the woke people are like screaming. It should be an Arab. It should be a black person. And then some people beat me to it. They said, first of all, this Cleopatra's and all of the Ptolemies are all Greek 
uh, kings of Egypt that came after Alexander the Great. They're Mediterranean people. The only, the only question we can have on Gal Gadot is she's Ashkenazi. Is she been more Sparty? Right. <laughs> ethnically, ethnically, she is far closer to who the, the Cleopatra. There's many Cleopatras, by the way. Right. She's close. But then they were they're not Arabs. There's no Arabs in the Middle East in this part of the Middle East until the seventh century they didn't arrive here so the whole thing is ridiculous there weren't the black population wasn't in north africa so it's just uh, it's all this politically correct stuff it just drives me yeah look i think it's also but you know if we can look at those narratives to try to understand you know where are they coming from and and how are they being used now in the political in the in the landscape of social media um to try to you know, delegitimize Israel and and basically throw Jews under the bus. You know, I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing a lot on social media right now is that anytime a Jewish person posts on social media, creates a video, um, you know, posts something on Instagram, just for the fact that they're Jewish and talking about something related to Judaism, in the comment sections, you'll get tons and tons of people just posting free Palestine. And I think that a lot of Jewish creators are really struggling with like, what does that have anything to do with what I'm posting? And why do you keep conflating, you know, my Judaism with your issues? Now, I can see why maybe they would say, you know, all Jews are related to Israel, but then they're basically making our point for us. (laughs) So what do we do with this, like these claims and, and how, you know, so some of the younger creators have resorted to saying, look, I live in North America. I'm, I'm a Jew that has nothing to do with Israel. Why are you posting this in my comments? And I'm not sure that narrative helps either. What do you think? Well, it's interesting because it's also contradictory because much of the argument made by uh, the detractors the, the and the delegitimizers of Israel are Jews are a religion, not a people. Right. So if we're a religion, which by the way, we're both. The reality is, is we're a nation and a people. We're not a race. Anyone can join us, but right. you can't have it both ways. You can't, so is that, you know, is that this term? If, uh, Jews uh, are just a religion. It's a really religious identity. Right. Is that this term now, ethno religion? That's how it's being put together now. Is is we're an ethno religion? There's a, it's a people. Ethno religion, exactly. But if it's just if it's just a religious identity, it's like okay, you know, a Christian in America does something, so I'm going to go like kill a Christian in England or France or right. Russia because they're all Christians. I mean, there's, there's like over well over a billion of these people, right. you know. You, you, so what they're sort of it, it, you know, they're onto something that's really true that we are part of a nation we do we might be scattered around the world for thousands of years and a lot of our history hasn't been shared in common for so long because we've been scattered everywhere but the reality is is our origins are all in the land of israel but what's interesting is exactly the fact that um a person a jew can get online and say something about being jewish and he'll be jumped on for something about israel which is seemingly completely unfair like what does one thing have to do with the other but the reality is is you know and i talk about this a lot there it's really onto something it's getting to the heart of what israel bashing is really about which has much more to do with israel much less to do with israel and much more to do with anti-semitism right and and you know we study the history of anti-semitism we jews have been accused of everything 
I mean, anything, Professor Michael Curtis at Rutgers University had the best line. I actually met him finally years ago. He came and watched me teach a class on anti-Semitism in Princeton. He said, I, I, he said, I had a great line. He said, anything and everything is a reason to hate the Jew. Whatever you hate, the Jew is that. Right. So throughout history, we've been accused of so many things. You know, we kidnapped Christian babies, used their blood to bake matzah. We killed their God. We poisoned wells. We're in league with the devil. We control the world's economy. We control seismic activity, trigger tsunamis in Southeast Asia that drowned Indonesia with tidal reefs, release sharks into the Red Sea to destroy Egyptian tourism, sent vultures to spy on Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So you know, the Palestinians accused us. The Palestinians accused us of releasing wild pigs. To, uh, to destroy their crops and terrorize the population. We kill them to harvest their organs. And Iran last year accused us of stealing their cloud cover. <laughs> so, so the excuses are unending. So we have such a good work ethic that we're everywhere at once. <laughs> you know, the, the funniest part of this, Ellie, is if anyone believed even 10% of what they say about us, no one would mess with us. Right. Would you mess with people who control the entertainment the industry, the, the government, the world's economy, seismic activity, the animal kingdom? I mean, right. I wouldn't touch these people. Right. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was such a great video that um, Rabbi Sachs did, Olive Shalom, where he talked about like the Jews are either the capitalists or the socialists. We're too rich, we're too poor, we're too strong, we're too weak, we're too like it doesn't matter which extreme you look at, we're accused of being all of them at the same time. So you know, when you're all of something, you're also like often nothing of something. So such an interesting way of thinking about it. Okay, so yeah. where does that come from? Why, why are we accused of being everything evil in the world? Well, it's, it's, it's the, the root of it is the inability uh, to, to market what we're really hated for. Because if one really understands that, it's, it's a lot harder to hate it. Mm. Um, and, and, and people who hate us have always hidden behind uh, different excuses to galvanize people. Um, you know, it's one thing is all the things have in common is creating fear. You know, I saw a great quote recently. I may have sent it to you. It was they asked Dr. Goebbels, who was one of Hitler's henchmen who at Nuremberg, they didn't hang him because he managed to take cyanide and kill himself before he was supposed to be hung. But he was the head of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. And they asked him, how did you Germans pull this off for the most sophisticated society? Germany was the leader in culture, technology, sophisticated democracy. And it turned it, turned it into you know, this, this incredible totalitarian state where they mechanized mass murder. And he said, fear. He said, if you want to get people, he says, basically, if you want to get people to do whatever you want, it's all about fear. If you can scare people enough you can get them to do anything. You can turn them from free people into slaves. Wow. And he says that's exactly the point. So Jews have always been the foil, like to whip people with the great, you know, scapegoat for humanity. Is that even a statement in the Gomorrah, if you want to become great, hate the Jews. Wow. But all these accusations, the, despite the fact that all of them have one thing in common, that they have nothing to do with Jews, they have two things in common. They have nothing to do with Judaism, right. but they're all about some nefarious Jewish control of the world on some level that gives them inordinate power, whether it's poisoning your water or, or controlling what you watch on TV or your government. Right. And it's designed to create fear and fear leads to hate and fear can you can mold even the most sophisticated people in the world to do the most unsophisticated barbaric things if you can scare them enough. And that's what it's always been about. But the, and, and, and yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting because then like if you thought about it in say Jungian terms, like, you know, Jew, the Jews are the shadow of the world, right? It's the, we get, we become the boogeyman. And so whatever fears are the zeitgeist of the moment, oh, the Jews are responsible for that. And, and then you just pin, you can just pin it there. So, and, and like in the words of Star Wars, Lahavdil, right? You know, <laughs> fear becomes hate, hate becomes anger, and, you know, anger leads to the dark side. So I think that's really uh, an interesting way to think about it. It's a really nefarious system and smart. Right, and, and uh, we're the great catalyst for that. We're, we, we, we have always been, we've always been at the right place at the wrong time as Jews when we lived amongst non-Jews. And now that we even have our own state and um, you know, half, almost half the Jews in the world are probably half the Jews in the world living in Israel today. Um, now they have to come up with a new, a new attack against us. So now you see it's all, and it's a scary thing it's, because Israel's persecution of the Palestinians doesn't really affect the vast majority of people in the world anymore, but due to intersectionality, it's become, you know, that all these things merge, like, you know, like Black Lives Matter, which has a very strong anti-Zionist agenda in its, you know, its platform. It all has to do with persecution of, you know, this is one of the many examples of colonial persecution of, of indigenous, yeah. you know, yeah. subjugated people. Those statements yeah. aren't true, by the way. The Palestinians are the Arabs who call themselves Palestinians are not the indigenous and they're not subjugated. You know, right. we could go into a long talk about that be, not being true, but it's not so much that so much of the world, although all the classical accusations against us are still around, you know, they're right. still from the right and the left. It's not, yeah. it's not unique to the, the anti-Zionist stuff is coming mostly from the left. The right. more traditional accusations against Jews are still harbored on the right. right. And I always say the reason I say right and left come from the French parliament, which sat in a circle, a semicircle. And I say, what's the problem with a circle? They meet in the back. So it's the same thing in the end. They both end up hating us. Well, that's you know, also extremism on either side. Right. That's also the three-headed hydra that we speak about, right? So there's the radical left, the radical right, and then the radical... Um, uh, radical Islam that, you know, so all of these are sort of the three-headed hydra right now of, of anti-Semitism. But, well, okay, so if we go back historically, what are some of the first examples that we see either biblically or historically of anti-Semitism? Where do, where's the roots of these hatreds? Where does it show up first? I mean, the, 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 one of the first examples I could think of is the story of Isaac with the Philistines. Again, not the Goldsteins, the Philistines. It's one of the first examples. Isaac, there's a famine in the land, and he goes down to the coast to live with the Philistines who are already in the land of Israel. And, um, and by the way, the reality is, if you look at reality versus fact, fantasy, and racist hatred of Jews, the reality is, is having Jews in your country and treating them failures fairly is always a great win-win. It's a great symbiotic relationship in biology. Symbiosis is both organisms benefit. I always use the example of a little fish that swim in and out of the mouths of a great white shark. Have you ever right. watched these sharks right. swimming? You know, it's, like, it's the last place I'd want to be as a fish, but those little fish are like little dental hygienists for the shark. Right. And it's a win-win because a great white shark with no teeth is not jaws, it's gums. And, and you know, <laughs> right. so the shark gets its teeth, a little fish gets protected and gets meals because it's cleaning, it's eating the stuff on the shark's teeth. As opposed to parasitic, which is like, I always use the example of those, those wasps that lay their eggs on the back of spiders. And when the eggs hatch, the first meal they have is the host that's been carrying them around, they eat the spider. So it says in the Bible, Isaac goes to live with the Philistines. 
and it's great. And the Philistines prosper greatly because of the Jews. Like the rain falls, the crops grow, the goats are healthy, the stock market's going great. And then like the jealousy starts and it's really interesting what happens then. <clears throat> they then plug up the wells that Abraham had dug. And I always like to point out that specifically we read through it and it doesn't really make sense because, you know, the reality is the most valuable commodity in the world is water, more valuable than oil, more valuable than gold. You know, if you were, if you had no water, you'd give all the oil and all the gold in the world for a drink of water. Right. And what they should have done was, you know, take the wells, don't plug them up. And they say, plug up the wells at Abraham. Oh, interesting. But right. I say there's an interesting. Claim them. Rather yeah, than it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's exactly, I call that cutting off your nose to spite your face. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, the non-Jewish world will historically do any number of things bad for itself to, to get the Jews, we'll chuck them out, but it'll be bad for them. You know, you see this, I know my, my name's Spiro, I'm from, my family's originally supposedly from Speyer in Germany. I can't trace it back directly to there, but that's what they say. You know, the, in the, you know, the, a thousand years ago, the Bishop of Speyer, Vitalin Jews to live in the town. He didn't like Jews, but he knew that Jews were such a dynamic force for change, like having Isaac living in your town, <clears throat> that having a few hundred Jews live in your city would, would boost the economy to the point where the city would grow its economy and you could build a cathedral. And that's what happens. But you fast forward a few hundred years later and they're expelling the Jews from Spire. In the 15th century, twice, expelling them, inviting them back and on the Rhine in the city of Mainz. They right. do it five yeah. times in one century. And it's the same and thing that happens. Go back. Go back to the story of the Philistines. They, they, they keep plugging up the wells or finally they start taking the wells. They drive, they drive us away. They drive the proto-Jews away. We get far enough away and their economy collapses. Everything falls apart. And then it says that Avimelech, the, Avimelech, the king of the Philistines and Pichol is general. They come chasing after Isaac who's moved away far away now, like, like happened so many times in history after we're expelled from one place for nothing we ever did to deserve it. Right. And he says, we only, and the, the king says, we only prospered because of you. So make a treaty with us. And Isaac's sitting there thinking like, what do we ever do to you? What have we ever done? Right. Why would, like make a treaty? We didn't <clears throat> start the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've never, you know, there's been bad Jews in the world. Not all Jews are good, there's, you know, but no people for its size has contributed more to the human race than the Jews. I'm not bragging here. It's a fact. You know, 0.2% well, of the world's Joseph population. Also. Then it goes back to that story yeah. where Joseph comes in, becomes the viceroy of Egypt, puts together the economic plan so that they survive the famine and become the superpower of that whole area because no one else can eat. But then, uh, you know, now in this week's Parsha, then arose a pharaoh who forgot Joseph. And now we're now we're slaves, right? Like it, it you know, we're, we were doing well to a certain point, but once we start to get too populous, then we'll become a threat. Um, so right. yeah, it's so interesting. So then how do we navigate that? Is there something that we are doing as a Jewish people that is creating that, or is this a pattern that's outside of our purview? Well, first of all, we have to get to what really is going on again. You know, that accusation of Pharaoh in Egypt is interesting because it's the classic fifth column accusation that Jews are never loyal. So Which of course is not true either. That? What's the fifth column accusation? The fifth column is it's a minority that lives amongst you that when you're under being, and he, it says explicitly in the Bible there, you know, will be attacked from the outside. And the Jews are a huge percentage of the population now. They're the largest ethnic minority in our country. They're going to rise up from within. They're going to sabotage everything. You know, they'll burn the fields. They'll, you know, whatever it is, they'll do. They'll cut the phone lines. You know, the Jews will, which is never true, by the way. I mean, you have these examples of Jews, you know, not being loyal, but generally the only time Jews aren't loyal is when they're being persecuted. 
generally they're super loyal. They're hyper loyal. Jews in Germany are the most loyal people in Germany. I love telling the story about, you know, Eric Marie Ramach, who wrote the book All Quiet on the Western Front, which was the first great anti-war novel of the 20th century. He lived through right. World War One. You know, he, he was a rock star, literary, real literary figure in early 20th century Europe. And uh, when Hitler came to power, he was a huge militarist. Uh, Ramach flees to Switzerland, and he was asked. In an interview, he said, do you miss Germany? And he says, why should I? I'm not Jewish. You know, it's, an wow. it's amazing because no one loved Germany more than Jews. They were the most German. If, if Hitler had allowed Jews in the Nazi party wow. and not been anti-Semite, every Jew would have joined three times. Right. So it's not the issue. It's never been the issue of not being loyal. It's always, there's always a much deeper issue and it goes to the heart of of whatever excuse it hides behind, whether it's those excuses or we are an illegitimate occupier of other people's territory and killing them to harvest their organs. And now we're withholding from them coronavirus. That's the new one. First of all, the Oslo Accords, it clearly states that Israel and, and agreed by the Palestinians, Israel has no obligation and no responsibility to take care of the health issues of the Palestinians. Wars in Gaza, sons from 2008 2009, a draft team duty for 38 days in Gaza. Where these are people shooting missiles. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me now? Yes, Ellie, did you want me to be the host? <laughs> no, okay, sorry, I'm back. Can you hear me now? Girl, go ahead. No problem. Okay, I, I see you now. Yeah, we're just not in the picture. We're not in the picture. Okay. Anymore. Awesome. But um, but none of this, but all of this has one thing in common. None of it has anything to do with reality. The opposite is actually true. And the other interesting thing about all of this is that none of it has anything to do with you know, physical occupation of other people's lands, because the people who come after us are very rarely honest enough to really say outright what is it that really bothers them about us. And that goes to the, that really goes to the heart of the matter, whether it's the Jewish people in diaspora or the Jewish state, that, that really is the issue there. Right, so how do we navigate that? Like now that we're in the diaspora, now that say there are a lot of Jews who aren't necessarily aware of or connected to the understanding of those deeper pieces, um, so when they come up and say, as one of their arguments, well, I'm a Jew that lives in Philadelphia. Why would I have anything to do with Israel or the Israeli government? Like where, how do we reconnect people with that idea? And what are some of the optimal ways to start to argue and, and fight back right now? Right. Well, I mean, number one, you know, the lowest level sales tactic, in my opinion, is to tell people, you may not care, but the people who hate us care that you're Jewish. You know what I mean? You can deny it any way you like. You can even become a, a you know, a member of Students for Justice in Palestine, which a lot of Jews are members of. Yeah. Because 
the social justice component of their Jewish identity outweighs anything else and they're lacking in a, in a solid Jewish principle. And by the way, on a very deep level, that really is the message that all Jews really are part of one giant family. We are responsible for each other. And if, if Jews in Israel are under threat, it, all Jews in the world are under threat, not just figuratively because this is my brother who's being attacked, but it's going to be literally. Hatred right. will, you know, we'll start with, we start with the Jews first and it spreads to everywhere else. But on a more deep level, what we really have to start is people have to, have to understand, people have to have a positive Jewish identity. Those people who are, you know, apologists, I'm, I'm just, I'm just Jewish by birth. I don't do the Israel. I don't agree with their policies. I mean, that's kind of sad because the generally people saying that know little or nothing about Israel, its policies, what a unique state it is. It's the only truly functioning democracy in the Middle East that has real religious pluralism, you know, unlike what happened in many times in the history of Jerusalem under Jewish sovereignty, Christians and Muslims, you know, have our holiest site, which is the Temple Mount, to the, the Muslims, which is crazy. It's a crazy stuff. No one does this, you know. It's Eric Hoffer had a great line. He's a, he's a, he's a writer from America in the, uh, the 20th century. He said, Jews are the only people in the world who are expected to actually act like Christians. <laughs> Very interesting. Right. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> right. Or actually, we have to like American we go American. we go as we say in Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, but the most basic thing is to explain to people before we get into any deeper understanding of Judaism, our mission, what we stand for, is that people have to have the facts about what Israel is and how Israel's behaved and Israel's legitimacy. You know, that we Jews are a nation, that our history goes back way before anyone else, that we created a state in 1948 after the UN voted 33 to 13, November 29th, 1947, to partition Palestine. We didn't force it on anyone. Had the Arabs accepted that along with Israel in 1948, would have been born an Arab state. The only reason why we don't have one today is because they rejected it every opportunity since 48, 67, 2000, 2007. Believe me, I can do this stuff off the top of my head. <laughs> like I debate this stuff on university. Now you can't debate anymore on university campuses. They won't let you speak anymore. Right. 15 right. years ago, I could actually debate someone. Now they just shut you down or you can make the best case in the world. And they say, those are your facts. We have different ones. Right. Um, right. But, but uh, that's the most basic. That's the most basic thing we have to give over to people. The fact that Israel is the only, is a democracy. It's a free market, open, tolerant system. It's not a perfect state, but it runs a heck of a lot better than any of the states around it. Right. Israeli Arabs who are 20% label um, are the only Arabs who live in a truly functioning democracy. Even if a state of Palestine would be created and we were to offer those guys to move to that state, I could promise you the vast majority of them would stay exactly where they are in Israel. And if you offer the Palestinians to move to Israel, a lot of them, trust me, they don't want Mahmoud Abbas, who's in the 15th year of his four-year term, and the corrupt Palestinian Authority or Hamas ruling over them. So the right. most basic thing is just having that narrative that's the scariest part of all of this is you you can't you know you can't uh, make a case anymore but the reality is there are facts there is truth there's reality and we have to be able to uh, uh make that point do we lose you again ellie you disappeared. no yeah can you still hear me i'm just i'm turning off my video to see if i can hear your bandwidth a little bit hey i don't see you but i hear you okay good um so i think that's really okay, interesting no so when we talk about israel as democracy like 
was Israel founded on some of those foundational principles that would connect it as a Jewish state, right? So when they, is there something in the actual um, state itself that would make it inherently Jewish or is it a democracy that's run by Jews? Well, I mean, Israel is in a unique state because it is a democracy, yet it's a Jewish state. They just tried to, they pushed a few laws through the Knesset that people found offensive talking, but, but the reality is it's a, it's a unique situation because in theory, whoever's the majority in a democratic country can decide what happens. It's always been an argument that the Arabs become the majority of the population, they can vote to change that. So Israel is one of the few states, there are many countries that have state religions. I mean, France is a Catholic country. This thing called right. the Church of England. Right. Uh, but they have, but right. these things aren't a contradiction. You can have a state religion um, and, 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 and have freedom of worship and freedom for other people who don't adhere to that faith. So it, it does create a unique situation for Israel in that it's the one Jewish state in the world. I mean, there are many countries that have Christianity as their dominant religion. There's 22 states of the Arab League. Right. And there's, I think, 56 states that have, right, there are 56 states that have Islam as their religion. No one is going after them screaming and yelling, how can you do that? Why is it only the one Jewish state? The size of New Jersey is being picked on for that, but it's not that, but we shouldn't read into that. Okay, but it's a Jewish state. Therefore, no, Israel has enshrined in its laws. We don't have a constitution in Israel, but there's freedom of worship for everyone. There's no like special taxes. We Jews had to pay, suffer all kinds of restrictions, pay special taxes and be ghettoized for keeping to our faith for so many you know, centuries in so many countries. Jewish, I mean, and Christian and Muslim. Um, we don't do that. We never do anyone. So, well, Israel is not founded as a Jewish state insofar as halach uh, is the deciding factor in what's on things. We don't demand from non-Jews that they become what squares idolatry becomes like what we call a Noah. Religious practices of each faith are allowed and recognized by the government. We don't interfere. You know, the rabbinate of Israel decides about Jews, marriage, divorce, burial, things like that, the rabbinic authority, but they don't interfere with this. The Muslims have their own authorities. The Christians have their own authorities. So it's only minimally uh, Jewish in the, in the biblical halachic sense, the state of Israel. I mean, Jewish, the laws of the state of Israel, by the way, are a unique and complicated mixture of some Jewish law, some uh, Turkish law, some British mandate law, some modern Israel law. It's very complicated. I wouldn't want to be a lawyer in, in Israel by any stretch of the imagination. Right. <laughs> but it's it's not a it's not like this racist Jewish state of occupying foreign white people from Eastern Europe who are dominating the indigenous population, denying them their rights. It's simply not true. Right. And our so when there is an accusation, say, of racism or occupation against the Palestinians. What you're saying is that no more so than any other country who has a multitude of religions and peoples that live in the vicinity or on the land, but we're just dealing with sort of the same everyday, we're dealing with people and people can be racist and biased and, and have all sorts of things like that. Is that what you mean? I mean, like all people, this, like, 
Israel's not immune to prejudice. Everyone's got that. But Israel's in a unique situation, not like America, which has, you know, America's a unique state. It's a melting pot. Or Canada's the same way. I mean, Canada's right. a mushmash of a lot of immigrant populations, and there's an indigenous population originally, right. etc. Yeah. Um, we're unique in that we are the indigenous population that are back, unless you can resurrect some Canaanites, and they've the only people who've been longer in Israel than us are Canaanites, and they disappeared a long time ago. Um, again, not the Palestinians, uh, but but we have a, a unique situation in Israel where, first of all, even the Israeli Arab population um, doesn't necessarily, they, they, they live in their own world. And, and, you know, when foreigners come to Canada or America, the first generation speaks the language they came with, and they're not really comfortable, and they live in certain areas that immig their immigrant community lives in, like, you know, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, you had Hell's Kitchen for the Irish in Little Italy and the Lower East Side for the Jews. But after a generation or two, people move out of those communities, they're totally comfortable in their ho in their host country, and they acculturate and, this and assimilate and marry amongst each other. Uh, the Israeli Arab population largely um, stays separate. They speak almost always Hebrew as a second language. It's weird. It's like living in Canada for a hundred years and still speaking, you know, you know, let's say in Toronto with an accent, like you came right off the boat because well, the first we language is kind Arabic. Of have that school with, system we have is not that a lot with of Quebec, right? We have an entire province where, you know, I would say- There the is an interesting, is yeah, that's interesting example. Right, the majority of French people in Quebec, even though the, the rest of the country is English, there are many, many, like my mother's whole family from Quebec don't speak English. They only speak French. Um, so I definitely see, we see yes. that in a, a North American country where there's an entire population that really just kind of keeps themselves in a certain way. Right, so that's that's an issue. There's, you're right about that. There is a similarity in, in the issue with minority communities and separatist communities. Like I remember Rene Levesque in Quebec, you know, 40 years ago, calling for French separatism, and you have that going on around the world. But you also have, but this is different in that um, you also there's also a large population that's living in a very small area, which is that Palestinian population. That's the same ethnicity is the other Arabs. Right. It's just a matter of which side of the ceasefire line they ended up in 1948, right. who uh, are not, you know, part of that population. So Israel stuck in a perpetual state of having to live pretty much right next door with a population that is a very hostile to the existence of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. So there's no other parallel situation to it. And I think the reality is, it's surprising how little how little, um, you know, like that line I said about Eric Hoffer, how Jews have to act like, only people expect to act like Christians, given how much, you know, you know, the grief we've gotten from the Arab world from between terrorism and wars. It's amazing how Jews keep coming back. Yes, we'll have peace. Yes, we'll have peace. Yes, we'll have peace. Anything we, we, we do, it's, um, it's incredible. So we, we bear very little ill will towards anyone, even people who are being pretty hostile towards us. So these are the things we have to, uh, be able to communicate and, and especially younger Jews who are living in diaspora who may have little or no experience with Israel don't appreciate any of these points because they're all buying into this fake narrative that yeah. has nothing to do with the reality the facts on the ground in Israel. Was there a hostility between say what's now the Palestinian population and Jews in Israel before the formation of the state? Like before um, the British mandate, was there, was there always hostility there or was that really, really kicked off once the idea of a Jewish state was presented? Because there were always Arabs and, and Jews living in that area for centuries. Was there always hostility? 
Well, first of all, it's not just in Israel. I have to look at the bigger picture of Jews in the Middle East. But the reality is, ironically, Jews have lived in certain Arab states today before there were Arabs there, like Iraq. Right. Jews were living in Iraq from the time of the destruction of the first temple. There was no Arabs living there at the time. Those mm-hmm. the people living there. You know, we're talking about Babylonians. They're not the same people. They're not, so it's not. The Arabs only poured out of the area of like the, the Hijaz and Saudi Arabians that had moved out of that part of the world in the seventh century of the Common Era and, and spreading around and around and around uh, to much of what the Middle East is today in these Arab states. These were not the people who were living there then. But there's been a very long history of relationship going back since the rise of Islam for 1,300 years. A thousand years ago, the majority of Jews were living in the Arabian Peninsula and in places like Iraq, and only a small percentage of the Jews, maybe 10%, were living in the Ashkenazic world, which has since switched over. You know, the vast majority of Jews today are, are come from the Christian world of Eastern Europe, but that wasn't always the case. Historically, Jews have, and it's never, there's no one hard and fast rule whether different places have different relationships in different times. Yes. There's always been an issue of Islam's attitude and we could discuss this at a different time. It's a great conversation. Islam has certain attitudes towards non-Muslims, uh, Jews, Christians, and pagans okay. that are en- enshrined in- as legal concepts in Islamic law. They're also preached about. Islam has a certain hashkafa worldview about non-Muslims um, that has created a certain tension mm-hmm. and, has co- and has caused at periods of time persecution and subjugation of different minorities, including the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And it was kept to varying degrees. The golden age of Spain was the golden age of Spain between the 8th and the 11th centuries because the Omayyad span. Spanish caliphate that ruled there precisely didn't really adhere to these laws and allowed Jews and Christians to to basically rise to tremendous you know positions of prominence and power which was again a great symbiotic relationship for both for the Jews the Christians and the Muslims until that came to a crashing down you know with the Almohadi invasion you know later in the history of uh, Spanish you know Islamic occupied Spain so that issue aside, there's always been Jews interacting with Muslims, and it's generally been on a one-to-one basis. These people interacted with each other. They maintained their own ethnicity and religiosity while doing business and often being friends with each other. For sure, these things existed. I know right. plenty of you know, old Jews who came from Sephardic, you know, from Arab countries who told me they used to have do business and be good friends with Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, once Zionism and nationalism creeps into the picture, and this is the same thing with Israel, by the way. Israel has periods of, you know, of where, where depending upon the Islamic dynasty and the situation in Israel, where there's peaceful coexistence, and other times it wasn't so. It's not true. And another big lie perpetrated by Arab propagandists is until Zionism came along, Jews and Arabs got along like brothers and only, you know, again, we generally did better in Islamic countries than a lot of Christian countries, but there were periods of horrendous persecution, expulsion and slaughter of Jews in the Islamic world. There's always an animus that's ingrained in in Arab Islamic worldview towards Jews. It's always been there. Mm -hmm. But in the middle, if you go, I know people lived in, in Israel and Jerusalem before the war of independence. And the big change was the 20th century with the rise of nationalism, with the return of Jews to Israel, right. with the rise of people like Haj al-Min al-Husseini, the Mufti, who was appointed by the British in the 20s, who became a close personal friend and admirer of Adolf Hitler, who imported all of the classic European. Muslims never had these ideas of poisoning wells and stuff in the Quran. You know, we fought, historically, Jews were in the Arabian Peninsula. Jews fought to preserve themselves and preserve their autonomy against the armies of Muhammad and later Muslim rulers. We lost in most of those cases. And because we lost, Islam traditionally viewed Jews as being wimpy. 
they're deceptive with their minds, but they won't threaten you physically. That's why the Arab world was so shocked in 48 and 67. Right. Jews right. fight. Oh my God, they fight. Right. But Christian and world. Plus we've never had a country to defend before, not for a very long time. So to see us as a as a people with an army, we, we haven't really had that since Hanukkah, like since that story. So yeah, exactly, really exactly. Surprising. Exactly. But you know, the Christian world viewed Jews as being always physically threatening. Look, we we killed we killed the God's son. That's pretty that's pretty nasty. You gotta be like the devil to do that one. We right. poisoned wells, we you know, so the ideas of Jews being physically threatening were not intrinsically so much in Islamic thinking. Haj al Min Husseini, when he became Alf Hitler, he imported these ideas into uh, the Middle East. And yeah, now you, you have more about that. What does that mean? So you're saying that the Grand Mufti, which is the head of the what we would now call the Palestinian people, had a relationship with Adolf Hitler? He was the head of Supreme Muslim Council in Jerusalem. He was appointed by the British, who actually fixed the election to put him in office. Ironically, he then became an ally of Hitler, rebelled against the British, and the British had to crush that revolt between uh, in 1936. It went on for several years. Wow. Um, yes, but he became an ally of Adolf Hitler. He visited Germany. He raised an, an SS uh, uh, units in the Balkans to kill Jews in the Balkans and in Greece and things like that. Yeah, he was all for bringing the Nazis into the land of Israel and exterminating the Jewish population and setting up concentration camps. I have books right sitting in the back of me is really my bookshelf, not the walls of Jerusalem. <laughs> I have a whole book on the Mufti and Hitler, which is fascinating. These guys loved each other. He actually had, the Mufti had like blue eyes, which is very unusual for an Arab. They were big supporters of each other. But once those ideas, you can see how toxic this is because you fast forward to today, it's unbelievable. Once these ideas of the nefarious Jewish control and all these things we talked about before start creeping in, the Jew becomes much more threatening to the Arabs. Until today, you don't see on mainstream Christian television shows about Jews doing ritual murder around Passover time to get you know Christian blood to make matzah. Right. But Al Jazeera shows these shows until today. They, they have this stuff on television. I've wow. seen it. I've seen like, you know, the, the Jew killing the Arab the, to take his blood to make It's unbelievable that the accusation that we kill Palestinians to harvest their organs is just a, a morphed out version of them, you know, metamorphosized version of that same accusation. Right. But that's doubly scary because with intersectionality of today, fast forward to 2021, and now you have all of this, which is deeply steeped in the consciousness of European culture that predates modern liberal democracies of Europe. It predates Adolf Hitler's not. Hitler's Nazi Germany, well, he would have been able to do that had not, you know, for more than a thousand years before, the Jews had been so demonized in the Christian world. Mm -hmm. But now you have all of these uh, medieval blood libels that have now morphed into Jewish control of the world's economy and social media and everything else they're doing. And wow. now they're in the, the Middle East also. And combine that with intersectionality that Arabs and the Palestinians are just one of the persecuted populations being persecuted by aggressive white colonialists, be they in America or be they in Europe. And it all merges together into this very toxic mixture of Israel is this demonized state, which is positively medieval. And we have to, as sensitive woke people around the world right. rise to defend yet another example of you know white colonial uh, illegitimate foreign aggression of an indigenous population and all of it is based on layers of lies and smoke screens but if you're so, sitting as like an american college jewish college student being yeah. bombarded with this stuff 24 7 yeah. oh my god this is really bad so can we just ask that question? We might not be able to answer it in the last sort of 10 minutes of this, but okay. So 
are Jews historically white? <laughs> yeah, Jews are not historically white, by the way. White comes from hanging out too many years in Northern Europe and not getting right. enough melanin. Right. Right. So no. what were we? So were we closer to, say, Mediterranean or Arabic or um, African? Like, what was that? Like, you know, when we see all these pictures of Moses, like as this like white dude with a big white beard, like, you know, were we how much like what did that look like do we have any idea of how we looked in the times of the actual what our avot and imachot looked like well, we don't the first depiction of jews in art is a sanherib's images on the, his palace in Ninva, which the british museum has of the fall of lachish you can see jews leaving the city but it's not a picture it's carvings and you, you can see our headwear and everything it's really interesting mm -hmm. but there's no you know had we had selfies you could be sitting there you know like i'm gonna take a picture of myself you know moses and the reality <laughs> right. is by the way the reality is by the way if you travel around the mediterranean go to greece go to italy jews look remarkably similar to those people so right. that always has a lot to be said the the majority of jews by the way even a lot of sephardic jews look a lot like ashkenazic jews but when jewish populations have been um scattered around the world for long periods of time and isolated. Right, and right. that causes a, a large amount of interbreeding in a small population and intermixing with the larger population. Right. You tend right. to take on, Jews don't live, we may have lived in Eastern Europe for centuries, but I've been to Eastern Europe many times. I mean, I lived in, I lived in Russia for half years as a graduate student. We don't look like Eastern Europeans. Eastern Europeans look very different from Jews. Jews have a very distinctive look about themselves. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, skin, hair, and eye color, which are the least deep connection there is right aside right. if you go if you hang out with a bunch of sephardic jews i'm originally moroccans and tunisians and i i was in Givadzev for 27 years and i davened every day in a uh in a um in a sephardi minion i'm saying despite the fact that they have more melanin than i do their facial features are remarkably similar to mine there's not a lot of differences there right um, but Jewish communities have been isolated. I told my kids, by the way, because I don't, you know, I, I, I'm very into the genetic research about Jews. You should know, first of all, that all Jews, it's called a haplotype. Haplotype is your the, the true connection between us as a people. And this is a great thing to explain, by the way, mm. to those misguided, well-intended, overly sensitive university Jewish students who are like, oh, we're foreign occupied, but we're not indigenous. Right. The reality is, number one, is that all Jews, despite the superficial differences, I'm talking about looking just collectively, we right. have a haplotype, which is Middle Eastern, meaning our genetic signature is Middle Eastern in origin, regardless of whether we lost the melanin or not. Okay. And that all Jewish communities have more in common genetically with each other, like, you know, Joseph Schwartz from Poland has more in common with Yaakov Mizrahi from Iraq in general, on average, than Yaakov Mizrahi has with his Arab neighbors that he actually might look more like in his skin, hair, and eye color. So our, and all Jewish communities, except for Ethiopians, who are the one community that's always been a question about their origins. It's not because they're black. It's not the right. issue. Uh, but all Jewish communities have a Middle Eastern uh, haplotype, which means our origins are here. We're all closely related to each other. And it's a big mistake. But be because of identity uh, politics, it's all about your skin, hair, eye color, and your gender, of course, but that's not relevant to this particular narrative. Right. But that's not what connects us. You know, all human beings have 99.99% in common genetically, but Jews are remarkably closely connected, often too closely connected, which is why there's so many genetic diseases. Huh. But, you know, I told my kids, all my kids are older, and, you know, I have three married and one engaged, and hopefully another one getting engaged soon, finally, and then I'll be a free man. But I told my kids, I said, I want you to marry Spartan. 
because you know we did we did this genetic testing thing of my parents and we came out 100% Ashkenazi. It was like it was ridiculous. Wow. I said this is not healthy. You know, you don't keep marrying your first cousin for 400 years. I say if you marry your first cousin for 400 years, you get Prince Charles. It's not so healthy. I hope, I hope no British people are listening. So I said please mix up the gene pool. Because, you know, they say, I saw a statistic that 40% of Ashkenazi women, their mitochondria shows they're connected to six Jewish females. That's not so healthy. So, wow. um, so I said, marry Sephardim. So my kid, my, 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 my oldest daughter, who's my middle child, listened and she goes and marries a boy, a Yemenite boy, 100% Yemenite. Wow. He is so dark. His nickname is Shoko, which mm. is chocolate milk in Hebrew. <laughs> Yeah. It's funny, we never try that in America. Wow. And I have a, a son who married a girl who's half Yemenite and half Egyptian. So they're dark, darker skin and beautiful mm. mocha colored granddaughters, which is great for the Middle East because I have two colors. I have white and burn. <laughs> they, go from, they go from beautiful mocha to dark brown and, and their skin looks great. You know, this is not important, but we're not, we're not a race. And we don't, and the, and the sad byproduct of separation and diaspora has caused us to maybe look sort of similar to other Jews from the same part of the world, but we actually have a lot in common and we're all part of one big, very multicultural United Colors of Benetton Jewish people. And that is right. something that's really important to understand, which yeah. really goes to the heart of what we're talking about, by the way, right. because we are part of one people. So what's going on in Israel, it's going to infect you as a Jew living outside the land of Israel. We okay. still didn't get to what really is the cause of all of this, but that really okay. is the Can we do it? Can we do, it? can we do even a bit of it? Or should we wait? And do I it don't know. Too? I mean, I'm a little bit hesitant to do it now because I think it's such a big topic that we shouldn't like, you know, like do the spoiler alert at the very end and, and go into it. Okay, so then let's do that. Let's do the spoiler alert and then do a part two because I think it is really an important topic. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'll I'll, I'll answer it without giving the the full answer. Okay. All the smoke screening aside, whether it's killing Jesus, poisoning wells, or you know harvesting Palestinian organs, or releasing wild pigs into their territory to destroy their crops, these are all smoke screens. They have nothing to do with reality, and Mm. they have nothing to do with Judaism. Mm. And the reality is is the, the commonality of hatred of, of Jews has everything to do with who we are in terms of our mission in the world and what we stand for in the world, mm. which is when people who truly understand what we stand for, who we are, what drives us in our spiritual DNA, which is something we really have to explain because that's right. weird. We know of genetic, you know, I know about mitochondria and I know of the double helix, what's spiritual DNA, but we Jews do have a Jewish personality. And it's not just because your mother raised you, giving you bagels, locks and cream cheese on Sunday and telling you you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. Right. It's something much, much deeper than that. Um, that we have a genetic connection amongst all of us. We talked about that we're all, like I said, but to be Jewish, you know, even if you don't have that, you know, the haplotype, you can still join the Jewish people. Anyone could become Jewish, but on the deepest level, it's the same thing. We have a, a soul connection amongst all of us. Mm. And And it goes back to the spiritual DNA that drives the Jewish people. And even Jews who are disconnected from that completely, who are poorly educated and lacking any Jewish education, it still is sort of as a basic operating software package implanted in every Jewish person's soul. Mm. And that's the reason why no matter where we live, 
what we look like, mm. how we choose to live or act, whether it's we try and assimilate or stand out as being very Jewish, any shape we change ourselves into, you know, like you like exactly what you said, I think it's the Jonathan Sachs you were quoting. We can right. be, we, we can be capitalist and communist, warlike, passive, different, the same, strong, weak, rich, poor, dominant, lazy, servile, aggressive, you name it. Any shape we change ourselves into, the hatred will just change its excuse and come back from a different angle because it's dancing around what is the central issue. It has nothing to do with that superficiality. It has everything to do with who we are in our soul, what we stand for uh, in our mission and yeah. what, our, what, our, what our role is collectively, whether it's as a people in our own state or scattered around the world in various communities as we've been for thousands of years. Right. And, and that really is the really interesting part because then when we understand that, then it's like, whew, then it's like a being a doctor and being, oh, I've been misdiagnosing. I'm, I'm prescribing the wrong medication all this time. I'm trying wow. to heal something that isn't sick. And right. now we can really focus on what the real issue Which is. Which means then that like, it doesn't matter what our argument back is. It doesn't matter what we say, oh, well, I'm Jewish, but I'm not Israeli. So like, it doesn't matter what the argument back is. If we don't actually understand what's being attacked, we can't defend ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. Got Which it. is why ignorance is always the greatest threat against us and not even anti-Semitism. Okay. All right. So then next week, let's go there. Let's try to like really put our finger on what is that actual, what is actually being attacked in anti-Semitism and how do we understand that for ourselves today in the modern world? Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 